have the distinct honor and privilege of introducing our speaker today. Pastor Mark Johnson is our uh, youth pastor, and most of the time we don't get to hear him because he's usually back ministering to our, to our young people, uh, to our youth, and we have the opportunity to hear him speak. And I, I heard him in the first service. I've heard him before, had the opportunity to share an office with him and hear his heart. He has such a profound call in his life to share to share the gospel with people, but specifically to our next generation. And not just our next generation, but he really has a heart for bridging the gap between generations. And so I think this is going to be a word that will touch you today. I just ask you to open up your open up your hearts to what he has to share and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Pastor Mark Johnson, let's give him a round of applause as he comes up. Thank you, Pastor Devin, for letting me speak this morning. <laughs> All right, we're going to jump into it today. Got a lot of stuff I want to do. Don't want to waste time with a long introduction. So I'm Mark. Hi. All right. Uh, this morning, I, was, I want to let you know a couple things going into this. I was asked to both preach uh, a part of the Family Matters series that Pastor Mike has been doing, if you have been here, um, and also to end it, so to do the series finale, um, which I thought was pretty a pretty interesting gesture for Pastor Mike to even say, hey, go ahead and finish this for me, because I would, I would be a little more selfish maybe and be like, no, I want to do the finale. But I'll just say this. I, I took it very seriously. I took it to heart. And so this morning, I want to kind of do both. I want to wrap up the whole series, and I want to talk about the relationships with teens and their parents and, and also grandparents. Um, I really think that this is, is an important thing, but I can't get around all of this without starting to talk about generations in general. So this morning we'll be talking about generations and be focusing on some of the teen generation uh, specifically. But uh, I want to give you the format of what I'm going to be doing today a little bit, just so you're not completely bamboozled about what's going on. I'm going to be speaking to the adults. That's, that's parents, that's grandparents, Hopefully. Uh, you're like, my parent doesn't act like an adult. Uh, it's okay. I'm going to be speaking to the adults this morning, okay? I'm going to be speaking to you, and then someone else, a super special guest speaker, is going to come up and speak to the teens. So if you feel like, hey, he's kind of he's beating up the adults a little bit, don't worry. I brought in someone very terrifying to beat up the teenagers today. Um, and then after that, I'll kind of recap everything, and we're going to reimagine a story of the Bible. We're going to see, as I'm speaking to adults, the other person speaking to teens, we're going to hear the Bible speak to us all, hopefully, okay? Um, and that'll be the format of this morning, so it'll be a little different than just a, a normal sermon. Um, so let me get started. I want to address a major issue that I believe is causing intergenerational dialogue and relationships to break down, both historically and currently. And it's a, it's a it's kind of a sentence that I formulated thinking about what, what are some of the things, what are maybe the biggest problems between generations connecting and working together and understanding each other. And I, and I kind of arrived on this phrase, when one generation dismisses the difficulties of another generation, it causes an incomplete under, or incompetent understanding, which leads to broken interactions between them. So, in other words, when one generation is dismissive, and if you notice, this works in just all kinds of relationships, spousal relationships, uh, friend relationships, but we'll, we'll take this to the generations. Uh, if you dismiss, belittle, um, kind of just pass on by, don't care, or you try to say, well, 
my difficulties are worse than yours. Uh, you, you do that to a generation, and you take that away from the picture, you do not have a complete, uh, complete picture. It's an incompetent understanding. It's an incomplete understanding. The context is lacking. You cannot have a complete picture, and without a complete picture, your interactions don't begin to make any sense because you're not really interacting with the whole person. You're interacting with a caricature, if you will. So that's kind of the premise of what I want to get at today and really dive into this, this sentence and really kind of dissect it a little bit. But as I said, I'm going to be speaking to the adult generation a little bit this morning about our teen generation. All right? So here's some, here's some words. Um, I had it harder than my teen did when I grew up. I had it harder. It was harder back in the day. Uphill, 10 feet of snow, both ways. Like, I don't say, oh, wait, no, I do. Oh, shoot. Uh, it, things were dirt more difficult, okay? And just truth be known, some things were. Some things were. Some things weren't. Because some things you can't say, managing social media was harder when I was a kid in the 19... 19- 60s. Um, so you see what I'm saying? But what I'm saying is there are things that, that we tend to dismiss the difficulties with by saying things were harder. Or, and I say this um, as a youth pastor who works with parents, and, and this is not directed at anybody in particular at all, but I love when, people, when parents say, I have it harder currently than my teenager. They should listen. I kind of want to be like, well, your teenager didn't decide <laughs> the decisions that you decided to get you in the current predicament, it's kind of silly to be like, they don't own a house, they don't own a, you know, they physically cannot by law buy these things yet because they're not of age. Uh, another thing that is a real popular phrase that we dismiss with uh, is kids these days. And this is probably one of the ones I hear the most. They have it easier. They have information at their fingertips. You actually had to read books. You couldn't just go on Wikipedia and find out all your research papers. Oh, but you can't cite Wikipedia, so you look down in the bottom references, and then you just cite those. It's a real difficult thing to do. I might have just helped some teenagers. Uh, But, so they have the world at their fingertips. They can talk to their friends anytime they want. They don't have to make that awkward phone call. You know, uh, yeah, hello, Mrs. Peterson. Can, can Devin come out? Because uh, I, this is awkward. I hate talking to parents. But can he come out and play? You don't have to have that conversation anymore. You know, it's a text. It's immediate. Boom. There you go. You don't have to wait. There's no, oh, <laughs> some, some of us will remember this. You know, mom's on the internet. I can't, get, I can't call my friends. Remember that? Uh, so you pick up the phone, and it's like yelling at you. It's like, oh, geez. It's on, oh, man. Uh, uh, some of these things, uh, entertainment is readily available. They can quick access anything they want. There's, I mean, you go on Netflix and look at the library, and then you scroll through it for an hour and don't watch anything anyways. But the point being is there's, too, there's just so much to be entertained with constantly. YouTube is insane. The amount of content on YouTube that get up, gets uploaded every single day. I mean, you cannot watch all the things that come out in the time before more stuff comes out. Um, some of the... <coughs> Some of the things with this young generation, they have support groups and advantages and, and policies in place for um, mental disorders, social disorders that weren't even acknowledged in the time of some of our parents and grandparents. I mean, they literally weren't a word, and now we have support systems in place for them and a place to catch all. And so um, 
So, but we dismiss the young generation because, oh, you have that, and it's easier. And of course, some things are easier. Um, but there are unique difficulties that this generation faces. Unique difficulties that the teen generation faces. I'm, I do not have a comprehensive list. Do not worry. I picked five um, in hopefully some scaling order. But I want to talk about some five difficulties this morning. Again, so that we bring perspective. Oh, is that Grayson? He got, I got his stamp of approval. All right. Number one, I want to talk about, again, some things that this generation faces. Obviously, we have COVID. I didn't want to spend the whole time on COVID because I'm not going to sit here and explain what COVID is to everybody. Like, what? COVID? Where that? What? Never heard of that before. But my point being, I, I want to talk about a couple things within the context of COVID, maybe, but uh, in the new generation that they face. Number one, their stage is bigger. Okay? The world's a stage for the young generation. We are seeing this. This is really the first generation growing up that grew up with smartphones in their hand. Our teenagers, our, our graduates. They're the first generation. We don't actually know what that's going to do long term to, gener- to one generation, then one, two generations, and three. We don't have any studies. There's no science that's going to say what that actually does for development. We're going to find out. Cool. This is fun. Uh, so we're going to find out. But the thing is, this, this stage, when we do North Texas fine arts, there's a stage of the North Texas kids, and they're all competing together to, to see who can go on to nationals. When they go to nationals, they're competing against, obviously, the nation. The judgment becomes much harsher when you're competing in the nation than you are in a district. And when your entire competition is the internet versus the competition being your graduating class, suddenly you find a new pressure. To be somebody unique, you have to be more extreme. To be somebody special or somebody that stands out, you might have to do things that betray yourself if you really want to stand out. And we could talk about the, you know, some of the bad ideas about trying to be like that and stand out that you don't necessarily need to in some ways, but uh, These kind of pressures are there, and we have to acknowledge them. Another thing is your mistakes are digitally immortalized. And Facebook, 11 years later, will say, you know, hey, hey, Curly, remember that time you messed up 11 years ago? I just thought thought you wanted to remember again, (laughs) right? It's like, no, thanks, Facebook, you know? Uh, so, and, and I love the memories thing, but I'm just saying, it's a more, it's a different kind of world. It's not a worse difficulty, it's a unique difficulty, and that's what I'm trying to get at today. Number two, the resources are overwhelmingly endless. Sounds great on paper. Overwhelmingly endless, you can access anything, except for when you take into account teenagers, especially young teenagers, your 12 and 13-year-olds are trying to develop a worldview, based on the information they have. Not the information that just their parents and their school teachers have, but the information of the entire world to then formulate some kind of worldview out of. And it's necessary for the development. They have to create a worldview so they can begin to interact with society with some grounded understanding, even if it's wrong. Like, why are they coming so stubborn? Well, they're predisposed to be stubborn intentionally at that age so they can start interacting with the world. Um, but the point being here is there's so much information coming in, they end up with no conclusion sometimes. 
It's where nihilism com- is, is on the rise. It's like nothing matters. Nothing's true. Nothing even, there's just no premise to build upon. So I'll just, what, is, what, is mor- what are morals? Why have morals? Why have anything? And there's, there's, and you look at depression and all these other things on top of this, but here it is. We see it with this oversaturation of almost overwhelming information, and instead of being secure in their worldview, however stubborn and maybe ill-informed it might be, now we're seeing worldviews not even be developed properly. Number three, their connection is constant. They never have a break in connection. Uh, and it's easy to blame kids for this sometimes. Hey, oh, they don't get off their phones, they don't get off this. And I understand, trust me, I'm a youth pastor and when we're trying to preach. I actually had a funny, this is in my notes, but a funny story. I had asked Pastor Mike to come speak back in the youth room um, a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night. And he came back and I had forgot to tell him before he came back that our kids earn points for taking notes. So like half of our room is sitting there like this when Pastor Mike's preaching. I'm like, oh, this is something I really should have mentioned before because he's probably like, what is this? They're all on their phone. <laughs> I told him later, he's like, I was kind of wondering. I was like, yeah, uh, whoops. <laughs> that was awkward. But anyways, my, my point being, they, never, they never seem to be unplugged. They never seem to break that connection. And we sometimes blame the generation. But who's the generation that built the technology and marketed it to young people? <clears throat> just saying, just saying, how did we get it? One of the most aggressive marketing campaigns and one that really stuck you know I, I hate to be like that sometimes but it's like well who let that through the gate in the first place you know we talk about politics or anything else it's the same situation well how did we get here you know and and in some ways it's it, it it's hard to really grasp into that and obviously we have personal accountability i'm a huge advocate for personal accountability for everybody um, and so I feel like whenever this, this, this generation, that generation conversation happens, it's always they should have personal accountability, not us. Anyways, I better digress off of that. So uh, anyways, despite being the most connected generation, they're also considered the most lonely. So they have a whole bunch of superficial connections without any meaningful, strong connections. Number four, their entrance into adulthood is more expensive than ever. Okay, and it's like, well, is it really? Um, Let's talk about the housing market. Let's talk about gas prices right now. I mean, we're looking at probably $5 a gallon, not too long. Imagine being a teenager and being like, I gotta throw $5 a gallon? Dear Lord, you know, I I can't make enough snow cones to get this money. Uh, Come on, man. Uh, College tuition, one of the things that I will get on a soapbox and get mad about, so I won't do it, but college tuition extraordinarily overpriced and has hiked way past what it should have been. Well, the quality never really went there. Uh, but, this, this, but you need to go to college if you want to do this. The need for college in general combined with that. Uh, food prices now, it's very expensive and and it's one thing to have a salary and to, and to look at this and be like, man, this, this kind of, this is rough. But to be an hourly kid who, who's like, you know, they might put you on the schedule, they might not. Oh, you messed up that one time because you had a church camp and so you didn't come in and now we're going to cut your hours back. Well, what are you going to do? Uh, number five, last one, and this is kind of a little bit more on the nose. 
their schools are open season these days. 311,000 students have experienced firsthand gun violence in their school since 2000. Meaning they were in the classroom next to the classroom that the, fire, the shots started going off. Meaning that their friends or people they know or their siblings' friends didn't come home from school one day. 311,000 students, notice not faculty included, just the students have faced this. I have a, I have a couple uh, things here I want to point out. And this is our kids. This is American kids specifically. I have, do we have the next slide? Countries with the most school shootings. United States, in the last 12 years, 348 school shootings. Mexico had eight at second place. If you do the math real quick, number one is U.S. You know, we're always number one because good job, guys. Uh, number one is U.S. And I'm not, this is not political or anything like that. I'm just saying, number one, U.S. This is about what our teenagers face, what they live with, the reality. Number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine combined is about 10% of number one. There are a lot of problems with this. But the, mo the most important one the church needs to recognize is how it affects our young generation and how to work with them. We used to hide under uh, you know, desks for, for different things or go to the hallway for tornado drills. But now any student will tell you, well, you, you have to have active shooter drills and active shoot. Are we going to arm our teachers? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do What are we going to do? Nobody knows. And it is chaotic, and every time one happens that's any, anywhere near pro prolific, the, the panic rises again. Some of you will recognize that panic with other events in history that we're going to get through later. But even taking these five things into account, I just want to say this. I'm only bringing these up so we can consider, hey, our young generation, yeah, okay. Maybe some of the things they have easier, for sure, okay? But some of the things are a little harder. Or some of the things are just completely unique and new that no, none other generation has ever had to face these things before, and we're not really sure how to deal with them. And I only bring these up so that we maybe be a little less dismissive with the young generation. Again, I'm talking to adults. With the young generation and what they deal with. Um, because as we understand more, we get a more complete context, which means a better understanding and I'll say this, I have this up here. When we don't dismiss the difficulties, we have a more accurate picture to work with. And when we have a more accurate picture to work with, we can relate on a deeper level. To fix the brokenness, we need to start listening to each generation. And one of the, the older generations, the grandparents, the parents, we need to really listen to our young people and our teenagers. I know teenagers can be crazy. But we have to be able to listen to the, and listen past just the outside but really try to reach in and understand them as a generation. I'll say this. Adults, if you do not acknowledge your teenagers' difficulties as unique and heavy, you cannot understand them. And if you cannot understand them, you cannot connect with them. However, teens, if you do not, if you do not acknowledge teens, your parents' and grandparents' difficulties as unique and heavy, 
You cannot understand them. And if you can't understand them, you cannot connect with them. So I want to talk to the teens in the room for the next few moments. And just as Pastor Mark has talked about, or talked to the adults about being dismissive of our young people, I believe uh, our teens often do the same to the older generation. Teens notoriously, you, you notoriously struggle with seeing their parents as human beings. And, and I was thinking about, as, as, as I was preparing and, and thinking through this message, as a child, I grew up in a relatively small community, and uh, my parents were just really involved on, on every level. They were, in, I mean, obviously in the church. My dad pastored a church in the community and, and um, you know, was, I mean, fairly well known in the community. He, he was very uh, involved in the schools, substitute taught, and just was always in and out of the schools. I'm appreciative of that today. I hated it then. <laughs> And I remember, guys, the first time that I walked into a classroom that my dad was actually subbing me in. It was the first time it had happened. I had prayed for years that it would never happen. And it happened. And I remember walking into that classroom. My dad was going to be teaching that day. And most of my friends, they, they, they knew my parents and were, were uh, you know, really held them in high regard. Were, uh, you know, our house was kind of the place to be. And they were in and out of our house all the time. But I remember... Uh, you know, guys asking me, man, why are you so quiet today? <laughs> but I can remember as a child going to the store with my, my folks, walking through Walmart or Kroger, and bumping into a teacher or a principal or a coach or some authority figure in the community and thinking, wow, they go to the store? They, they're, they're like people, like, like we're people? But mom and dad, are, they're just folks, they're, they're people, and I've told my kids numerous times, hey, man, I've never done this parenting thing. This is my first, first go-around, and, and it's, it's not always right. It's not always pretty, but we're doing the best that we can, and, uh, you know, hopefully along the way we, we learn. But mom and dad are just real people trying to do the best that they can day by day. And... They, they struggle, they have hardships. There are oftentimes that the struggle of relationships or finances, job issues, and so many other things that they may hide from you as a teen or as a child. Maybe to protect you, maybe they don't know quite how to, how to bring it up and how to talk to you about it. Maybe they have some insecurities in themselves that they won't bring it up. But I would venture to guess most of the time it's a protection, it's a, it's a, a means to protect you. Uh, so you won't worry and won't be scared about things that you really have no control over to begin with. And maybe as parents, we hide our struggles too well, so our children learn to do the same. And next, just as adults can dismiss your struggles, teens, again, can be just as, if not more, dismissive of the struggles that adults face. And maybe they learn that from watching us. You don't see the difficulties that the adults have gone through. You don't see the blood, the sweat, and the tears that they've poured in to life to get to where they are today. You don't see the, how they've earned where they are today. 
and I, I use that term loosely. It's just, for lack of a better term, they've earned their spot. First of all, mom and dad probably started out just like you are today. Well, they did. They started out as kids. They became teens. And odds are, when they married, when they decided to take that next step and go out on their own and then found the one, I remember when I found my one, and my one is here today, and she 23 years ago today, we stood on this stage and said, I do. How about that? I'd say that it's 23 years for me. It's like dog years for her. But when we started out, we had all these hopes and dreams, and, you know, we were just had the world, what do they say? You got the world by the tail on a downhill pool, man. And guess what? When life started to happen, it wasn't quite as easy as what we thought it was going to be. In fact, it was way, way more tough than we thought it was going to be. And I can remember starting out, as probably is the case with many of you in this room, as you started out, we had nothing. I mean, I, I remember even on our honeymoon, you know, picking and choosing things that we could do and couldn't do if we, if we wanted to get back home. We better not eat that meal or we better not go do this because we may not make it back. And just a quick side note, on our honeymoon, we actually ran out of gas. Not because we were out of money, but because I was stubborn and believed the computer and what it said and how many miles I had left. But that was my wife's first trip in the backseat of a police car. Was in Nashville, Tennessee on our honeymoon when we ran out of gas on the side of I-40. It's a story for a different time. I have it on video, though, if anybody wants to see it. Had very little starting out. And uh, I can remember how important the meals with parents or in-laws or church friends were. Not, all, not, not just because we were cheap, but because we were broke. <laughs> and I can remember just at the nick of time getting a phone call or having an invite from somebody at the church or, or my folks or her folks we were going to meet. And, and we knew that that was going to be a meal that we'd get something to eat that we didn't have to pay for. And that way we could finish paying this bill or, or, or taking care of buying groceries or whatever the case was. And then came the time to buy the first house. And we had been married for about two years. And uh, we found the perfect house. This was the one. And we wanted to buy this place. And we didn't know anything about any of this stuff. And uh, so we started through the process. And when you're that young and starting out, you don't have a whole lot of credit. And what credit you do have is probably not very good. And so what do the lenders expect you to do before they'll give you money to buy that house? Moms and dads in the room, what do they want from you? They want a down payment. And when we went in and started talking and figuring out what this was going to look like, this down payment was going to look like, that was a lot of money. It's a lot of money, way more money than, than we had or could come up with in a, not just a short amount of time, even a long amount of time. It was a lot of money. But we had family members that stepped in and said, you know what, we'll help. And they loaned us some money up front to get into this house and gave us two or three years to pay it back. And it, it, it helped us to get up and get on our feet. 
And because of that, it started the ball rolling and equity and all those things that you've got all kinds of years to figure that out. But because somebody took the time to help us, it helped get us to where we are today. So I say all that to say you're not going to be where mom and dad are at the minute you start out. It takes time to get there. Another thing with the older generations, the, the parents and the grandparents, not only did you miss the blood, the sweat, and the tears of what it took to get them where they are today, but they also didn't have the awareness. And Pastor Mark touched on like you know, the likes of social media. My kids don't understand a day before cell phones. Even when Rachel and I began to date, uh, we, we had them, but you couldn't afford to use them. We couldn't afford to use them. And, and actually, back in those days, a lot of times it was just one phone per family. And whoever was going to be on the road going the furthest distance, that's who took the phone with them. And it wasn't all this information at your fingertips like Pastor Mark was talking about a while ago. So the information was just not there. We didn't have all the awareness of mental, social, physical health issues. And there weren't many people fighting for us and for our parents at the time either. In fact, just a quick statistic with just this one thing, autism. Autism was not even discovered until the 1940s, which is a relatively short time ago in the grand scheme of things. It wasn't even discovered until the 1940s. It was not widely diagnosed until the 60s. It was not listed as a true disorder until the 80s. Yeah. And it didn't qualify for special education until the 1990s. Let that sink in for a minute. So there are unique difficulties that these generations have faced, your parents and your grandparents have faced and have gone through that you know nothing of. There's, again, blood, sweat, and tears that have gone into getting them where they're at today. And I want to, as Pastor Mark shared his five things, I want to share a handful of things with you here before we turn it back to him in a few moments about some of the struggles and the challenges that the older generations have gone through that has shaped them into what they are today. About 90 years ago, the world was in the midst of the Great Depression, where people were starving, and there were only rations of food to eat. And it hit America and Europe the hardest, harder than any other nation. And I had grandparents, my, my grandparents were people that lived through that. And I remember as a child not understanding some of their ways because of that. Today, I'm far more appreciative of it. In fact, I find myself sounding a whole lot like them <laughs> the older I get and the more expensive things become. But I didn't understand it 40 years ago. I understand it better today. It's because of what they lived through during that period of time. Tomorrow is the 78-year anniversary of D-Day. So almost 80 years ago, we entered World War I. 400,000 sons, husbands, and fathers didn't come home in a three-year span. 400,000. And the ones that did come home, many of them didn't come home the same way that they left, mentally, physically, emotionally. They were changed. Then we lost another almost 60,000 in the war in Vietnam. 
About 60 years ago, America was quicker with a landing on the moon than it was to illegalize discrimination based on skin color, which only happened after the massive riots like the L.A. riots, which saw over 1,000 people injured, 34 people killed, and accumulated $40 million in property damage. America also watched as its president was gunned down on live TV just 50 miles from where we sit today. And that's one of those days, one of those events where if you're in the room and you have recollection of 1963, you remember where you were, what you were doing, what was going on. You remember a lot of details about that day, do you not? About 50 years ago, in the Northeast, just about 20 miles, 20 minutes rather, from where Pastor Mark and Danny grew up, Three Mile Island, a nuclear power plant, had a meltdown with a potential, of, uh, potential threat of exposing unknown millions to toxic radiation levels if it had not been prevented, which caused a panic in the Northeast. And the country entered a panic of potential nuclear meltdowns. I grew up about 15 or 18 miles from Comanche Peak nuclear power plant when they were building that thing. I remember back in the 70s and the 80s when they were building it. And I remember all the talk. I don't necessarily remember a lot about Three Mile Island, but I remember all the talk about that thing and, and the danger that it brought to the area. But these are things that shaped those generations. Almost 40 years ago, and this is getting into stuff that I do have very clear recollection of, families watched in anticipation as the space shuttle Challenger took off and blasted into space with seven people aboard, and one of those was a teacher by the name of Krista McAuliffe. It was a big deal, really big deal. And because of that, schools all over the nation had tuned in to watch as this teacher blasted off into space. And I remember as a freshman in high school, they had TVs set up in our classrooms, and I, and I remember sitting in, in school and watching, and 73 seconds in, the adults in the room will remember that thing exploded into a, just a fireball, killing everyone on board. And the nation watched as these people died on live TV. Coming up on 30 years ago, 168 Americans went to work in Oklahoma City in the federal building only to become a victim of an act of domestic terror. And the country entered a panic of potential bombings. Many of those that perished were children in a daycare center in that facility. And then about 20 years ago, September 11, 2001, the world changed. This is another event that if you're in this room and, and, and can remember 2001, you probably remember exactly where you were, what you were doing, what was going on. It was a Tuesday. I was sitting in, in an office right back here in, the, in, in this hallway and remember watching all that unfold as, as a nation, we began to realize that we were under attack and the world changed in a moment. Nothing was the same. The skies were empty. Everything stopped. I mean, you turn on the TV, there's no professional sports. There's no, I mean, everything just completely shut down in an instant for days. But never before 
or since has our country been more united than it was for that period of time that followed that attack. These are the things, young people, that have shaped the generations that have gone before you. All of these events help shape their worldview, help shape how they respond in different situations. And not just these events, but the consequences also of these events shape their worldview, their fears, their perspectives. Just like, and Pastor Mark touched on it just a moment ago, but just like COVID-19 over the last, going on three years now, two and a half years or so, has shaped the world that we know today. And there are things that are different today that, that, that are different than they were in March of 2020, the beginning of March 2020. Our world changed again. But just as that has shaped you and is shaping you, these events shaped your parents and your grandparents. So even if we just take into account these seven things that I've touched on, it immediately becomes a bit harder to be dismissive or to be crude in regard to your parents and your grandparents and their generation. Why is that? It's a more complete context, which means a better understanding. When we don't dismiss the difficulties, we have a more accurate picture to work with. And when we have a more accurate picture to work with, we can relate on a deeper level. So I'll say it one more time. Teens, if you don't acknowledge your parents' and your grandparents' difficulties as unique and heavy, you can't understand them. If you can't understand them, you can't connect with them on a deeper level. Thank you. When one generation dismisses the difficulties of another generation, it causes an incompetent understanding which leads to broken interactions between them. God desires generations to be united. It is over and over and over again in the Bible. Generations were meant to be united. Families were meant to have a legacy. That the plans of the Father would many times be carried out by the acts of the Son. But we see a breakdown in our culture many times throughout history. One generation dismisses the other. One generation just ignores the other. And the question then becomes, well, how do we fix it? How do we fix that gap? And the answer, before you roll your eyes, it's very cliche, but it's very true. Listen. Listen. I love history. I love all that stuff. Not everybody does. So I understand a little bit more about where some of our older generations have come from. You know, not the Great Depression, what it really was. In America, it was so much longer than the, some, some reasons for policy. <laughs> but it was so much longer. And the way it affected parents, which then taught things to their children, it changed culture. Every single one of these things began to affect culture. So the idea is, how do we fix it? And I, as I said, listen. 
We talked a lot about big sweeping issues, but here's the thing. Each one of these issues are massive in scope, but they affected every single individual differently. Every single individual uh, faced different experiences in a different way. If someone was the student, or sorry, someone was the child of a teacher watching the challenger go up and explode, it hit different than someone who didn't have one. Um, and so I just, I just challenge us to be con consider like everyone's unique experience is different. So you have a generational experience and you have the individual experience under that. And I think a lot of times as Americans, we just don't listen very well. We, we talk really well. In fact, we pretty much export our talking and our acting all across the world because we're really good at talking. I mean, really good at talking. And so um, the idea, though, to understand and to listen to, uh, is both for kids to listen to their parents, parents to listen to their kids, grandparents to listen to their children, children to listen to their grandparents. Uh, my, my grandmother actually passed away as I was down here for the interview way back in March. And I remember the last couple of times meeting with her, just I didn't ask her questions about the past. It was just interesting to hear, like, wow, like, so that, it wasn't actually that long ago. Some of this stuff wasn't actually that long ago. Women didn't even get to vote in this country over 100 years ago. And now we have women running for president. It's, just, it's, it's a whole different world, and, and it changes so rapidly. But I want to I wanna kind of start landing this uh, plane here and say this. I, I haven't brought up the Bible yet. I haven't preached the Word yet. Sometimes I, I know that we, what we can do is bring up the Bible and say, the, here's the Bible, and now we'll explain why it's true. I pr usually prefer to bring a truth and then be like, yeah, and here's how they figured it out thousands of years ago. Because I think that I, I love that approach because for young people, it's, it's, well, it's not just because the Bible says so. The Bible is the truth because you just found the truth and then you found it in the Bible. And then you did it again. And then you did it 75 more times. And you're like, dang, how did they know? How did Solomon have such a read on people? How did, how did Paul, like, read, like, humanity? How did Christ know the hearts of men even back then? And I talk about, if we change so far in 100 years, talk about 2,000 years across the ocean, all right? I have been actually attempting to preach the Bible or the inverse of the Bible and say our breakdown is because we're not following one passage of Scripture specifically. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is James 1, 19 through 20. Dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. This is the, the brother of Jesus coming in in his letter right out the gate. Chapter one, he's like, hey, what's some of the most important things the world needs to know from the brother of Jesus Christ, the one who changed the world? That right there, not just, it doesn't just fix generations, it fixes marriages, it fixes friendships, it fixes uh, just every kind of relationship. 
But in the terms of generations, I want to I kind of analyze this a little bit and say, the idea here applied to the generations would do so much to fix it. To be quick to listen is to not be dismissive. Hey, hey, tell me. Tell, I don't want to dismiss. You tell me. I don't want to assume. You tell me. You tell me, Jose. You tell me, <laughs> right? I don't want to be dismissive. I don't want to assume. I, I'm going to let you tell me. To be slow to speak is to gain competent understanding. So I'm going to let you speak, and then I'm not going to interrupt you, because I really want to know the whole picture. I don't want to know part of the picture. I want to know the whole picture. And then finally, to be slow to anger is to seek unity over reaction. It's to seek the relationship over emotionalism. And some of these things here would go so far into bridging the gap between the generations. That's kind of what I wanted to do today. It's just, let's just listen this morning a little bit. Let's just hear a little bit. Let's not jump to conclusions. And, I, and, and the verse ends with, in verse 20, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And I believe this is the same truth. A generational divide does not produce the people that God desires. He doesn't divide the uh, he doesn't desire spousal divides. That's not his intention. He doesn't desire parental divides, sibling divides. They happen, but he doesn't desire them. I believe God can still work through those divides in spite of them, but that doesn't mean that's what he desired. I believe that God has always intended generations to work together. To work together on anything, though, communication is key. And I want to do something, we're going to do something a little different today. We're going, to, we're going to, well, yeah, very different. We're going to take these last couple minutes here, and we're going to hear from one generation, two generations from the Bible that work together. And I know the Bible's written a lot in third person and talks about, you know, when Moses is, is dictating the, the, some of the books, and then he references himself as Moses, you know, talking in third person. I want to take this today and have us take a moment and really experience the Bible, maybe more in a first-hand account of two generations of people that worked together and what it meant to them. This is not in the Bible. You will not find it in the Bible. You will find a lot of the pieces of what's talked about in the Bible. But it's going to be a little different, and we're going to bring the lights down, and you're going to hear from, I would say, the journal of some of these people in the Bible and I'll leave you with this before they do. Generations that, ref, um, yeah, generations that, my bad. His plans, here we go, uh, is to leave us with this to think about. His plans have been, are, and will always be generational. God's plans will always be generational. My name is Hosea, son of Nun. I live in Egypt as a slave, and most of my people are slaves. We weren't always slaves, though, and the story of my people is kind of crazy. In fact, it seemed that the only reason we got here was because some sons of one of our great ancestors decided to get rid of their youngest brother for some selfish reasons. 
Not knowing that by an odd turn of events, their youngest brother would end up here in Egypt as a nobody only to rise through the ranks to become second in command. My dad says that our God, we call Yahweh, definitely had a hand in that whole situation. Anyways, in the middle of that boy's story, a famine hit the land he came from, and his whole family ended up here. I imagine that was an awkward reunion. After moving here, our proud and resilient people thrived here in Egypt. We grew in number, in influence, and in power. Unfortunately, my dad always brings this up. When one group of people grow in power, those who are in power begin to panic. Through a bunch of horrible and unfair actions, the Pharaoh planned against us, all of us. Long story short, we are now nothing more than slaves, with no land, no freedom, and no way out. All we can do is hope Yahweh has not forgotten us. I pray to him every day in hopes that he'll give us a way out. We are a broken people. Pharaoh has no reason to release us, and we don't have the strength to release ourselves. All we have, at, all we have is Yahweh at this point. I would love one day to just taste freedom. I'm only a kid. I didn't ask for this. I didn't even do anything to deserve it. We need Yahweh to send an army to destroy Egypt so we can make an escape or something. I can't believe it. Yahweh heard us and responded loud and clear. He didn't send an army. He only needed one guy. Moses, the Moses, the guy Pharaoh's guard, all said was probably dead, came back. At first we thought the son had fried his brain or something. He started saying incoherent, insane things. He said Yahweh told him as a burning bush that he was to tell Pharaoh to let my people go or else. Or else? The, river, the rivers will turn into blood. Locusts will swarm. It will hail in Egypt. Everyone thought he was nuts, including us, until everything he said started to happen. Laughter and disbelief turned to awe and fear. I was even afraid as one of Yahweh's own. The last thing Moses said would happen, that everyone's firstborn son would die unless you cover your doorway with the blood of a lamb, which is kind of weird. But we went, we went with it. After seeing all the other things happen, when that actually did happen, Pharaoh finally let us go, and we went. Well, he did let us go, until he changed his mind. I'm not sure if his army stalked us and planned an attack or just got lucky, but they found us as we were pinned against the Sea of Reeds. I think everyone thought, Yahweh really just brought us here to die? But Moses, <laughs> I'll never forget looking through the crowd to see him lift his staff and the sea itself split in half. He held his staff high and started walking straight through it. He wanted us to hurry through it as well. And it took a minute to process exactly what just happened, but we went through the new path. Pharaoh's soldiers on our heels were fast approaching and entered into the other side as we were just getting out. Moses, not even looking back, dropped his staff and, at last of us, and the last of us exited the sea closed its mouth on all of Pharaoh's men, probably killing most of them, which means we are free. Now we are marching towards the promised land. Everyone is excited, and hopefully we get there soon. I can't wait to start our new life. Forty years. 
Forty years of grumbling and fumbling around looking for the promised land. I don't understand why our people could not just stay faithful to Yahweh after all he had seen back in Egypt and even on the road, but here we are. Finally, I can't get over the fact that Moses, the one who obeyed Yahweh from the start, never got to see this moment. I know he made mistakes, but without his faithfulness, boldness, and leadership, we would still be in Egypt. It would be just another day of exhausting hard work to benefit the nation of Egypt and whatever Pharaoh wanted. Moses changed our future, our destiny. A nation was born from his dedication, and he didn't even get to see us arrive. It breaks my heart. He didn't get to see the walls of Jericho fall. He would have been floored to see us begin to take the promised land back. He was like a father to me. He even renamed me Joshua after we left Egypt, which means God is deliverance. I can't help but think my entire life stands on all he built. I'm sure I'll never see another Moses in my lifetime. It's so disappointing to know that many in my generation don't respect the blood, sweat, and tears that Moses invested for us to be here now. Even though it is the promised land, it feels a little bit tarnished by this. Either way, we're here in Canaan now. We'll see what the rest of this land has to offer. Hopefully, I can get these people back on track. I've been thinking of Joshua, my successor, one of the most faithful followers of Yahweh. His heart was always after our God. I know he looked up to me, and at times, I think he thought the world of me, but I probably let him down. But I hope he knows, as much of my legacy is full of nearly unbelievable stories, it would have been buried with me had he not carried it on. The story of Yahweh himself relied on my spiritual son to carry on the story of his people. I watched him go from just another slave in Egypt to someone worthy of the mantle of leadership. When others saw doom and gloom, he saw opportunity. It was a beautiful thing to witness, and I should have told him more often how much he meant to me. I wish I had reminded him more often that Yahweh had plans that cannot be contained within one lifetime. Plans that require one generation to pass down their knowledge and wisdom to another generation. And the new generation would have the knowledge and wisdom of their elders to grow beyond even the previous generation. And as the younger generation grows to maturity, they will continue that legacy with the next generation. And on and on. If only Joshua can find this out on his own, maybe at least a remnant of his followers will follow our story. Since my death, something has been on my mind, something that Yahweh said, something so profound to me that I just can't get it off my mind. Yahweh told me that one day I'll get to see Yahweh's own Joshua on a mountaintop. He said this Joshua will deliver the entire world out of a fate worse than Egyptian slavery. I don't know what that means. Will Yahweh's Joshua be a great warrior, a great prophet, a spiritual son? When I died, Joshua took my position as leader of the nation of Israel, and I saw him as a son. How could Yahweh ever give a single man that much authority over the whole world? Surely no man could fill those shoes. It's not like Yahweh could have a son. Or could he? 
the plans of the Father were meant to be carried out by the acts of the Son. Even God the Father depended on His Son to carry out His plans. And I want to remind everybody that His Son then looked at a bunch of confused, awkward teenagers to put the fate of the gospel in their hands. My purposes today were not really to educate for the sake of education. It was to soften hearts between generations. I hope everybody in this room, at least in some way, whether it be a teenager to a parent, maybe a parent, current parent to their parents, I just pray that there's a softening here at Bethel Temple and across America. It would be fantastic between the generations because I really believe they were meant to work together. And we get so angry and bitter because we work with inefficient, incomplete knowledge of who people are. We caricaturize them. Our politics are built that way. But that's not the way God intended his people to be. And I pray as we move on today, we're going to enter into an altar call. It's going to be a little different today. I, I, want to pray, I want us to be praying for and seeking out God to soften our hearts. And so as we enter into this song, if, if you feel like the Holy Spirit is pushing you to maybe reconsider, to maybe re-reflect, re to maybe reprocess some of the things that maybe you've had a grudge against the older generation for whatever reason. Maybe you've had a grudge against the, the young generation coming up. That God and the Holy Spirit would begin to soften your heart because the younger generation was always meant to stay on the shoulders of the older. And the older was always meant to have their legacy carried on by the younger. What good is it if Moses dies without Joshua? People all scatter. The story's gone. Joshua fulfilled Moses' legacy, but Joshua would have still been in Egypt had it not been for Moses. It was both of them working together that caused God's plan to move forward. So if you will, if you want to come up, ever, I mean, we could stand up and go into the song, but if you'll pray that God will soften your heart, if you believe that the Holy Spirit is pushing you, I want to give that time this morning for that. And then after we're done with that, I'll pray a blessing that Pastor Mike asked me to pray over the whole thing and we'll be done, all right?
Jesus Christ. I bless you with the promises of God, which are yea and amen. The Holy Spirit make you healthy and strong in body, mind and spirit to move you in faith and expectancy. May God's angels be with you to protect you and keep you. May God's grace be upon your home that it may be a sanctuary of rest and renewal, a haven of peace where sounds of joy and laughter grace its walls. God give you success and prosperity in your business and places of labor as you acknowledge and obey the imperative of scriptures concerning the tithe. God give you the spiritual strength to overcome the evil one and avoid temptation. God's grace be upon you to fulfill your dreams and visions. May goodness and mercy flow, follow you all of the days of your long life. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I bless you all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all this morning for coming out. I pray that you go forward. Remember the generations. Maybe reach out to somebody that you haven't talked to because they're from a different generation this morning. We're here as a family of believers. Thank you so much for hearing the stories of different generations this morning. You may head out.